Luckily for you, the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything is to be found in this podcast, A Worker's Guide to Everything. Sometimes cans, often bad language, always solid politics. This is the Trademark Belfast podcast. Listen out for trademark regulars and very special comrade guests and fellow travellers talking all things lefty, Ireland and the world. We remain, as always, anti-sectarian, anti-racist and anti-fascist. Enjoy. Buenigisoltas. Hello and welcome once again to another Trademark podcast. I think this is number 82. Um, joined today by Maeve McDade. We had the pleasure of meeting Maeve last year uh, when she was nice enough to sit on a panel that we organised at the World Transform down in Brighton uh, on the subject of Ireland or the relationship between Britain and Ireland. Maeve is a native of Derry, of the city of Derry, although you'd never know that. She rarely mentions it. Um, Maeve has been working and living in England, God love her, for the last 17 years. I won't tell you how old she is. Um, and last year she was awarded a PhD, and it's broadly on the subject of that PhD that we're focusing today because it's a subject close to my heart. Um, and I was talking to Maeve about this the other day, and I said it was a little bit, when I read her, and I did actually read her PhD, so I deserve brownie points for that. But when I read it, it was a bit like reading family history. Um, so it was a really interesting read for me. So Maeve, what was the PhD and, and why did you choose that subject? Alan, hello, by the way. Yes, hello, Stevie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very uncharacteristically nervous, so hopefully I don't waffle on too much. Um, yeah, so the PhD uh, was about the Irish in Britain. Um, they've kind of been mythologised, almost mythologised, as this kind of entity that uh, existed in, in post-war Britain. And I guess I kind of wanted to explore more the people behind these kind of huge numbers uh, of migration. Um, I also, as you as you mentioned, whenever I first moved here 17 years ago and realised I was surrounded by English people, sought out ways to kind of find the Irish community uh, within the different areas that I lived in. Um, I play the harp and I realised that it's such a, a nice way to kind of access um, people and to kind of give them some culture from home that they, they kind of maybe miss necessarily whenever they live here. So I find a, a great home in that community, despite being on average about 50 years younger than the, the people who go there. But yeah, I thought that that was PhD worthy and I'm, I'm glad that you read it and thought so too. No, I did. As I said before, it was a bit like reading the family history. My, my, I'm the son of, of parents who were part of that um, immigration wave in the 50s and 60s that went over. I think my dad went over in 59, my mum over in 1960, and they met in London and they married in London. They lived in Brixton all their lives until they, they got a chance to come home. So it really spoke to me, the whole PhD. And But there were bits of it I hadn't realised, and there were characteristics that you brought out in your research, which I found really interesting. I'm going to ask you a few questions about that. But the first thing is Irish immigration to, to England or to Britain, but to England as well, specifically as part of a, of a long historical tradition, isn't it? And it's, you know, um, it's a troublesome relationship, to say the least, between the two islands. And one of the many contradictions of that relationship, of course, is you have these people on the one hand being colonised and then moving to the heart of that empire out of necessity because of that colonisation process. Um, but what were those kind of key waves of immigration or have that, or has it been fairly consistent over the last couple of hundred years? Um, I, I'm I'm glad that you identified the kind of contradiction there of um necessarily emigrating to somewhere um that you've been colonized by. And I think maybe we'll talk about it a bit later, but that for, for me precisely indicates a huge disparity between um Irish migration to the States compared to Irish migration to Britain, because it's also compared as, as being maybe the same thing or a similar migration pattern, which of course it's not precisely because of that reason. 
But I also think it's really important just to kind of unpack that a bit further. When we talk about Irish migration, you and I, because we're not professionals, talk about Irish, the whole island of Ireland, migration to Britain, the island of Britain. And that's often left out of migration studies. Um, scholars from the 26 counties tend to only look at migration from the 26 counties to Britain and don't even include people from the north uh, as being necessarily Irish so I think it's really important just to situate that early on that whenever we're talking about Irish migration we're talking about all island migration so whenever I read um, academic pieces or whenever I have read which kind of inspired the PhD to be not partitioning um, you know I'd read about Irish migration to the UK so-called and, and it just kind of makes me go a bit mental because how do we understand these islands if we don't count people from the north as First of all, being Irish, and uh, second of all, having a very specific migratory experience because while those in the south maybe didn't feel colonised anymore, though the legacy was still there, those from the north absolutely, you know, did feel that um, contradiction and that kind of often betrayal by the seven days. You know, should we be leaving Ireland? Should we be um, leaving when the struggle is is kicking off? But because mainly young men couldn't get work uh, in places like Darien and Belfast. They had to emigrate. They just, yes, some, the is, Catholics. Framing it, framing it, using that, like, Irish immigration to the UK is, is of course, fucking ridiculous. I mean, academics <laughs> should know better because it's like someone goes from fucking Dundalk into Newry. Yeah, are they, exactly. are they emigrating to the UK? I don't fucking think that. They're going from Dundalk to Newry. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, it is, I'll get on to that one later. I've got a couple of questions, specific questions I want to ask you about that. But it is incredible that the academics can make that huge mistake, isn't it? You know, over something so obvious to us, people that, you know, people who come, uh, live and come from the island. But that, those ways of immigration from the, whenever it was from the, I suppose, even pre-famine, but certainly in famine afterwards, they're part of the story. And this is the interesting thing as well about, they are part of the story of the history of capitalism and imperialism. I mean, those ways of migration match again and can be mapped. You can map them across the political economy of the growth and expansion of the British Empire, um, and there's a lot of there's we often forget, don't we, about the, the the historical longevity of Irish communities in Britain. It's not just about that wave that come over in the fifties and sixties, is it? I mean, they've been there for a couple of hundred years. Yeah, I think maybe the the biggest difference is that um, by the nineteen fifties and sixties wave, um, there was a lot more kind of independence from um, church and state, maybe. Not entirely, and we can see, and we'll talk about it a bit later, how the dancers reproduced kind of heteronormative, hegemonic ideas of the family and of the role of men and women and kind of reproducing um, Irish ideals of the family, but in Britain. But I think that for the majority of people who I spoke to who came over in the 50s and 60s, they felt that in the 30s and 40s wave were slightly too religious or more conservative or perhaps stricter. Um, but I guess that kind of goes hand in hand with, you know, the kind of growth of um, young adulthood and under capitalism and, you know, um, yeah, just the, the growth of um, disposable incomes and spending money and things like that. So people... It's also important that you outline in the PhD as well that people don't, you know, my, my dad told me years ago, and it still upsets me when I think about it, he told me that when he went to Birmingham first, he went over, he cried himself to sleep for a year. And that that you know that that impact the emotional impact of immigration is really important because he didn't want to leave he didn't want to go to England, and that you know those push and pull factors of immigration are rarely discussed. Obviously, you're pushed because there's no work at home, um, and you're pulled because there is work elsewhere, particularly in Britain, particularly after the Second World War and the rebuilding of Britain after that. You know, and you can't stay at home because you've got no you've got no access to to work or to the means of production or the land even. So 
you know, back in the 19th century, you went and filled the factories of the English Industrial Revolution in the 1950s, you went over to, to fill the building sites and the hospitals of, of Britain because of the rebuilding after the Second World War. So, um, and I know the focus of yours is that period, isn't it? It's that second, it's that post World War II, the, the golden period of capitalism. My old man always said, like, you know, you know, the, he was never out of work. You could, couldn't be out of work in that in Britain in the 50s and 60s. You could leave a job on a Friday and you can go into one on a Monday. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in particular for um, lots of men who moved over, they kind of followed those um, very transient migratory patterns where they could do, you know, a couple of months in Birmingham, then find themselves up in Lancashire and then down in London. And obviously the focus, the site of my PhD was looking at um, those who have now retired in London. So for the majority of them, they did eventually end up in London as that was the place where most of the work was um, and, and the settlement uh, happened for that cohort. Um, but yeah, I definitely feel that there is a gendered aspect to it where men would come and do that, um, you know, very transient kind of migration, whereas women tended to f- stay in the same kind of um area of initial settlement and that's where, where they it would end up staying often as you've kind of already alluded to and kind of caring rules so you know the Irish men were building the nation and the Irish women were kind of caring for it and uh, nursing orderly uh, teaching um, a uh, lot of child care a huge child care industry recruitment happened in Ireland in the 1950s and 60s and because you know lots of women um, accidentally became the heads of their own families because families were still so big at that point uh, were, were kind of natural carers and ideal kind of candidates to go and look after the, the children in Britain. Um, it's funny, there's yeah. a side issue there. There's a, there's a side issue there that was one of the characteristics of my family because so many women worked in spaces and places where they were surrounded by English voices and, you know, an English context. Even like my mum was a secretary. So she she adopted this quite weird Mrs. Bucket English accent. She sounds a bit South African, whereas my dad spent his entire life on building sites and his accent never fucking changed. It was the same. He passed away a few years ago, but you know, 40 years in England and his accent was the same the day he went back to Westmead as the day he left it, whereas women had to accommodate themselves, didn't they, to workplaces in a, in a more kind of in- integrative way, I suppose. I, and I think um, there were periods where that was particularly acute. So um, what, what I kind of found through interviewing people was this kind of public and private accent. So among other Irish people, they, you know, held their accent and in public or in public spaces, like on buses or in workplaces, they definitely adopted a, a more neutral accent, maybe not a Miss Bucket accent, but definitely a more neutral accent. But it was often the case too, where, you know, people like, well personalities like myself or you you know you, you don't want to get told how to speak or, or where to speak and, and how to speak it so for people where you would have this kind of neutralization you also have people like steadfastly going out of their way to make sure that their accent or dialect was heard you know often to their own detriment one of my participants didn't get further employment and um, he was from County Down because he refused to accommodate his accent not for an English person, but actually somebody from from the south of Ireland. Um, he was like, I can't understand this. This is, you know, whatever you're speaking is nonsense. So, you know, he squared up to this guy and actually didn't get further employment because of that. So accents are really fascinating. Um, they're, they're kind of a study, obviously, in their own right when it comes to kind of Irishness and hierarchies of Irishness, both among the native English population and among uh, Irish people from across Ireland. You know, we kind of do it colloquially. You know, we can identify what we would kind of call a culture accent and you know, it's often very good spirited and uh, in good humor but uh, definitely at times in the 60s and 70s it, it could have been very fraught as well so we find this kind of um, 
majority neutralizing in public spaces of accents. Yeah, my my mate Joe passed away a few years ago. He said he tells me of the. I'll, I'll talk. We're going to talk in a minute about you know, immigration in six counties as well, because that's a different experience that people have, particularly during the trials. But he said he was over in Blackpool in the early seventies, and he was a uh, he was in the union, and they were having a big meeting in the hall, and they were going on strike, you know, and they were going to take industrial action. And Joe said he shouted from the back of the room, "Burn the place, the fucking grind." And he said it in a strong Belfast accent like that, and he said the whole fucking place went <laughs> dead silent. He said just because of that. The association with that accent with the Belfast accent in the early 70s and the trouble but we'll get on to that one in a minute I wanted to ask you one quick question about because one of the things that come out in your PhD which really resonated with me and struck home was the you know obviously when people are going over in the 50s and 60s they're, they're creating and finding their own spaces as you said where they can express their own Irishness and and the main vehicle of that was was the dance halls and I never kind of thought about that even though my own history and my most of my memories of childhood are about the holy rosary social club or brixton high road every saturday night religiously we fucking went there you know um and your phc really goes into that in a lot of depth because of the importance of that space for the irish community tell us a bit about that yeah so that was kind of accidental i um was living in forest gate when i'd first started my field work and came across um like a like a lunch club dance club for older Irish people and I, I just through talking to people realized the continuity of of the dance hall as a space for community building solidarity friendship making culture reproducing I I just suddenly realized that this wasn't just like a standalone phenomenon for kind of people over 70 they enjoy but it was absolutely rooted on this experience of initial migration as young adults whenever they first arrived to Britain to step into this already sort of established but kind of re-emerging dancehall culture. Dancehall means something entirely different I think in Brixton these days but um, uh, uh, for want of a better phrase because this is what they were you know kind of huge dancehalls uh, it was clearly such an important part of identity formation as well like these were safe spaces for people to express their Irishness in what was overwhelmingly a hostile environment to socialize in if you were Irish people were absolutely expected to to go to their own spaces and and not necessarily integrate and I think that was something that you know I kind of had an idea of but you know government policy is very focused on the integration of um, migrants but that can only happen if the host community wants that and more often than not, that, that's not the environment, unfortunately, that people were walking into. I wonder what the percentage of, of, of people who went over to England in the 50s and 60s, I wonder what the percentage of, of those are who, who got married and how many of them met in those dance halls. I say it's a really high percentage, isn't it? Because, I mean, my parents and all my uncles and aunts who lived, worked over there, they, they all met at dances. No, it's hugely significant. And I'm in a, like a dance hall, Irish dance hall in England Facebook group, and... It's very wholesome content, but it's just how people met their partners and spouses. And I think what I kind of touched on earlier about it being a step away from the gaze of the church and stayed at home, but actually they were just reproducing very heteronormative, hegemonic ways of, of meeting partners, but on their own terms as well. It was still a departure from the kind of strictness and closeness of home, but they were also like, you know, spaces where you could learn to say no and make friends and make contacts. And it wasn't just about finding love. Well, I was going to ask: were those, were those spaces mediated by the church? I mean, how, you know, or were they political spaces, or were they kind of mediated by church control? Because I mean, I'm assuming a lot of the dance halls were, like ours was, was next to the chapel. 
So there was a real mix and that's something that I probably don't go into enough detail on, but definitely for future studies we'll look at. So some of the smaller ones were run by the church, but they were mainly a commercial enterprise um, for, you know, Irish business owners to kind of expand. Yeah, they definitely range from maybe small parochial halls, parish halls within different um, boroughs to the, you know, the big national or uh, well, definitely national ones. People would come down to Liverpool for a big for a big one. And I think by the time that the, the show bands were in their kind of heyday in the 70s, it was slightly different from the 50s and 60s dance halls. But, the, you know, these spaces were huge commercial enterprises. Ours was that but, bad. I, I, I used to go to ours, and of course, at the end of every night, you had to stand up for the anthem. I remember me, uncle, yes. me grabbing me by the fucking collar and get up the fuck, stand up. And, and of course, I just and I knew all the words, I banged out the words. And then there was a, a Republican event when I was about 12 or 13 in Maharfeld in South Derry. Um, and anyway, it was actually a disco outside Toon Bridge. And so, you know, at the end of the night, they played the anthem, and everyone stood up, and I stood up, and then they played this song, and I was like, what the fuck's that? And I go to my cousin, what's that? And he goes, it's the fucking anthem. He goes, you sure? And he goes, yes, I'm fucking sure. Aaron of Ian. What I'd been singing for the previous seven or eight years in this, this Catholic social club was fucking Faith of Our Fathers. So that space was clearly, our space like, was clearly mediated strongly by the church because it didn't play Aaron of Ian, they played Faith of Our Fathers. And I'm like, fuck me. Wow. I can't really tell that publicly. I'm ashamed of myself. I just have to get off my They chest. do still play the anthem at the Irish run um, lunch clubs and tea dances. Um, I just, for the listeners, tea dance, I think, is a modern lunch club where dance halls are the kind of 50s and 60s coming together of uh, lots of young people uh, to meet new friends and find work and, yeah, I find love, as you mentioned. But they still do the national anthem at the end of the tea dances today. One of the uh, one of the things you mentioned in the PhD and one of the, I suppose, one of the images and or memes, I suppose, is the term we use nowadays, cultural memes that resonates with people or that everyone refers to is is that that um image of no blacks no dogs no irish you know that kind of thing that that, that image and you see i know that you sport the t-shirt for on behalf of two fact the trade union football and alcohol committee of more blacks more dogs more Irish. but there's been a lot of controversy about that hasn't there that sign is i mean there are some that claim and i've written articles about it because i did my own little bit of research about this page we got here who have denied in fact that that sign ever existed and it's an invention of the 1970s um, and also there's a similar argument being taken place in the United States over Nina, no Irish need apply that sign. And people say, oh, this is an invention of modern Irish, you know, left or Republican politics. And it never actually happened. Did it happen or is it or, or are we still debating it? Like, I mean, look, I think there's there's plenty to debate within the wider sphere of how um, the insider outsider status of Irish people is white migrants, but it's colonized subjects as uh, insiders but apart but you know there's absolutely and you know I'll, I'll happily there, there's no doubt that these signs were prolific that they didn't just exist but they were endemic uh, in cities like Birmingham and in London certainly less likely in places like Liverpool where there was a huge integration of, of the Liverpool Irish but every single one of my participants that I spoke to and I've been active in the Irish community in London or sorry in England for 17 years um, I've no no reason to doubt, to doubt that experience happened and people still have the signs but I think one of the most uh, indicative ways in which we know this happened is the continued solidarity from places like Black, uh, Broadwater Farm with the black community there with the Irish community you know I go for a drink in Tottenham and any man over or a woman over 60 will say there she's Irish she's our comrade we know what it's like to struggle together I think that endemic solidarity and working class communities because 
that's where it happened. And yeah, you know, the Stafford Scott, you know, he doesn't miss a body Sunday event. The Mark Duggan family have huge um, partnerships with, with the Irish communities uh, there still to this day because we understand, you know, structural oppression. And I think, well, in the kind of microaggressions of daily life, Irish people could mask things like accent or, or necessarily um, escape the kind of brutal, uh, you know, racism that black and brown people will face uh, in England. Solidarity doesn't have to be, you know, a matched experience. It's just something that we understand of structurally happened to, to our communities that we build solidarity from and not necessarily compare exactly to. So, yeah, I yeah, have no doubt. You wanted analysis, didn't you, than, than, than some of the shite analysis we've seen over the last couple of years when we talk, when we talk about the, the kind of racialized stereotypes applied to the Irish in Britain in the 50s and 60s because they were extremely prevalent. And I know them myself. I mean, I know from my mum's, my mum particularly, because she worked in an English context, that the abuse was constant. I'm a dad, different from my dad because he was on a building site and he was surrounded by other fucking Irish lads. So there was there was less there because they were kind of, I suppose, more secure from it when my mum suffered her entire life. Um, but those stereotypes were very prevalent, weren't they, in the 50s and 60s? Yeah, and I think, um, and, and certainly they, they got worse by, you know, the 1970s, but in the 50s and 60s, um, yeah, uh, I would say that stereotyping was pretty prolific, but it became you know, more structural. The Prevention of Terrorism Act that was set up in the early 70s was specifically created to racially profile Irish people. And I think what's really significant about a certain um, genre of British politician like Jeremy Corbyn or like Lutra Raman uh, and people like that is that they still see the significance of, of remembering that because our solidarity can only be built and understanding situated in now with a kind of attack on Muslim communities because of their religion and their identity if we understand how and why it was used against Irish people uh, in the 70s uh, and 80s you know, you know as recently as the 1990s before the so-called peace process but we, that's definitely another topic um that's a debate for that's another point. yeah so you, you make the point uh, it's a really interesting point actually on one part of your PhD you said that there's there was obviously widespread misgivings if you like towards the very presence of Irish people on English soil, particularly in the seventies, with the outbreak of the Troubles, but, but at the same time, there was hardly any recognition in England about the British presence on Irish soil. And that's yeah, it's, it's very, kind very of a one-way kind of uh, analysis or one-way view of this, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, it's totally absurd that you know Irish people were treated with suspicion, and even though that the, the huge roles that they played across the kind of fabric of Britain, culturally, socially, politically, professionally, you know, I'm thinking particularly in, in London in the 1970s and 80s, Irish people played a big role in the Labour Party and things like that. I don't think it came of soon in that kind of ilk or that generation. But for me, what was so apparent was that it was there was never any recognition of English, not even wrongdoing, because obviously, you know, we've been vindicated, of course, it was wrongdoing. But the fact that the uh, British were there entirely illegally and against the will of the people there in the first place that was never ever acknowledged in in these kind of conversations and to be fair I still find that that today obviously less prevalent but I still think that there's a real gap in even well-intentioned you know British people's understanding of the the history of Ireland and and why there was a so-called troubles in the first place they seem to to be missing well, that, just, that let's be honest it's not just a gap is it it's a fucking deep myopia about we on the the Troops Out podcast, that um, when the British left, particularly look look west, they just see New York. 
and on and fucking just disappears. There's a there's a big story there to be had. We should do another podcast on that. You know, put the definitely because they deserve it. But what, one of the things you um the, the, you made the point before about the north having a, a different kind of dynamic, I suppose, in terms of immigration. Um, because you, you make the point that when considering what is Irish, you know, for the purposes of of, of your study. Irish people born in the north are, are actually rarely included in studies about the Irish in Britain, which is weird for me, because but it makes sense, I suppose, because my mum's experience was the same as my father's experience. She was coming from Ireland to Britain um, and he went from Ireland to Britain. But according to some studies, she was just moving internally within the UK. So she wasn't immigrating anywhere, which is a fucking ridiculous concept to me. You know, as a son of that woman who experienced what she experienced. Um, and in fact, academics left academics in, in Britain have kind of colluded in distance in the north, you say, um, you know, as, as a place apart and not in, not to be included in that story. How much did that annoy you? And you realise that? <laughs> you know, it takes a lot to annoy me. No, but I think, right, so there's two things there. First is most studies of Irish migration to Britain is done by people born in the 26 counties who come with their own kind of either conscious or subconscious bias about what it means to be Irish. But the only point at which it becomes annoying, because I appreciate that people have their own kind of, um, you know, goals from their research and what it is they want to get out, but where it becomes annoying, where it becomes a really important point of principle, is this uh, obsession with how Irish people were treated differently during the, the conflict or in the, the oppression of um, Irish people in the six counties. Um, they talk a lot about the, you know, uh, no dogs, no blacks, no Irish, the racial profiling of Irish people. But again, they still don't include people from the North. And yet what Jonna Devlin True, who's kind of pioneering work on Ulster accents is, is really shown is that it's very rarely happened to someone with a posh Dublin accent or with a West Mary accent. This happened, you know, more often than not, far more prolifically to people from the North. They're being included in the pathology of Irish people and the construction of an Irish uh, migrant in the 70s and 80s but their voice is being totally erased because they're not deemed Irish enough by the interviewer by the people writing the book and I think that's the point where it becomes where I become annoyed anyway because you know it so becomes a use... British it's not just a British thing it's actually a free state thing you're saying in terms of their studies of, of Irish immigration to Britain totally and I think actually what I find in Britain and you know I don't want to come for the whole discipline but Irish people from across the island still aren't really counted in migration studies. Migration studies is um, kind of very focused on um, non-white migration. I think after Brexit, there's been a you know, proliferation of studies on Eastern Europe. And I think that that's maybe where Irish migration will be a useful uh, comparison towards that kind of economic migration coming, coming to Britain. But I think Irish people are raised from... British migration studies uh, core modules and um, academic departments and then people from the north are further raised from where Irish uh, migration scholars come in to talk about Irish experience in Britain. There's been huge um, you know groundbreaking work being done about the Irish in Britain you know the Forgotten Irish by Mary Tilkey. Irish people are still uh, more likely to suffer from early onset dementia, different mental health issues compared to the host population there's been huge significant work being done about the Irish in Britain but unfortunately within that there is an erasure of um Irish people from the north to be included in that which it's I think is issues. a massive it's disservice. It's kind of a related issue isn't it I suppose in the sense of that there's, there's there is an issue about the authenticity of people's Irishness if they're from the six counties not just in Britain but also in the free state 
I mean, I know all about that because I'm a Cockney with an Irish identity. So I know all about being people telling me I'm not Irish. But if you're from Ireland and you're told you're not actually Irish, it must be even more fucking infuriating. I think you get denied an Irish identity at home, right? You know, it's the largest party until two months ago. You know, just your leprechauns, you're not real. You're the fake identity. We're all Ulster men. You, you know, you're denied it at home. You're denied it in Britain because people say, yeah, but you're from Northern Ireland, you're not really Irish. And then you're denied it by your own kind of fellow country people, <laughs> you know, people from the free state saying, oh, but you're not really Irish, you're Northern Irish. And I think by all means, if people have a, 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 I think if people were coming at this from an ideological perspective, which I think, for example, a lot of unionists are, I actually don't mind that as much. It's whenever people actually just do it to kind of undermine you or take the piss or think that your colonization is like a joke or you know something that can't be taken seriously because I think that they do take for granted maybe in the free state that they're born Irish we have to fight very very hard just to maintain that Irish identity both at home in the north on holidays in the south or living in England it's up for constant debate and I just don't know I, I, I don't know why it has to be the case that we have to be so othered in a place apart you know, simply being an Irish person. Did I mention I was from Derry? I don't know if I've ever brought it up. Um, and particularly coming from a place like Derry that has so many different names, it's people's kind of gotcha, you know, like, aha, now you're London Derry. And they expect you to laugh. And after 17 years of living here, you just want to kick I mean, them in the bollocks. <laughs> it was never funny, but I am getting closer to getting closer to kicking them in the bollocks. <laughs> yeah, I suppose in, in that sense, that there's another kind of experience, I suppose, that that um, needs talked about and that that would be of course the experience of people from a protestant background from the six counties who go to britain because again using someone else's story but joe again you should tell the story about when he when he was a a, a junior orangeman and a loyalist back in his teens before he kind of had a, a damascene kind of um conversion when he was uh working on the ships and he was in south africa and he came home as a, he came home a communist but he said that when he first went to England he said everyone was calling him Paddy and he goes I'm no fucking Paddy I'm a British you know and it, and it, it occurred, only occurred to him then that no the people over there don't consider us to be British at all we're just fucking Paddies to them and well this is you kind of want to it's very different is it yeah this is like you kind of want to sit down so it's, it's almost the inverse of maybe necessarily you know my experience I think what happens to me more coming from a you know a Catholic background or you know a nationalist or Republican background is the opposite but that's what I mean about the gotcha so the, the gotcha also happens to Protestants who consider themselves Northern Irish or British they'll be reduced to simply no no you're just a paddy aren't you you're just a mate and I think that for three of my participants in particular they became Irish through their experience of being around English people and realizing that English people didn't like or care for them and they had nothing in common with them that they became Irish through this process of like othering uh of their identity um there's a really interesting think... story there isn't there there's a really interesting story there about how how the prods became irish by going to england i mean there's another, yeah. there's another story there to be told you almost kind of want people like gregory campbell to go and do like an internship and and like anywhere and eventually right we'll see how long he lasts as a british person there <laughs> um yeah because you just they just don't see and why should they we're not the same of course we're not yeah, no, that's an interesting one. The last question I got for you, and I know that, you know, it wasn't part of your PhD because I read it, um, was, and it's, but it's one that's kind of fascinating. I mean, did, did it come up at all? Because one of the things that occurred to me as a, as a, as a kid, but more, more as an adult, was, was about the Irish language in Britain and how the Irish language behaved and where it went in Britain. Because I think I was telling you the other day, 
I raised our kids with Irish and I'm a gay liberal myself. And I remember when my youngest daughter was about three or four, she ran into the front room and my dad was sitting and my dad fucking broke out in Irish to her, started speaking. I was like, I turned around to him and I said, I'm a gay liberal. And he goes, yeah, well, yeah, of course. I guess, what the fuck didn't you? And for in his entire life, me going up until I was in my early 30s, I never knew my dad had quite good Irish. And then I discovered and I started asking questions about the numbers of people in my extended family who were all Irish speakers. But it was kind of in England, certainly there, it was, if it's difficult enough to have an Irish accent, I suppose it would have been really difficult speaking Irish. And of course, you have to be part of an Irish speaking community. Did that come up at all? Or maybe that's just another area of further research, is it, I suppose? No, I'm really glad you asked that because that would have been like that was going to be a question I asked you. Obviously, you know, um, that that's kind of your area of expertise. I think. And I know something about, about it, just personal experience. No, but something about like right, if we understand sociological research, right, the data that I gathered was um precisely gathered because of who I am. I I I obviously I'm an Irish woman. I am very interested in kind of identity and ethnicity and how identity shifts over time and place but I'm not an Irish speaker and I think because of that I'm learning but I think because of that it necessarily didn't come up and after we spoke last week I thought about potentially the first kind of tea dance that I went to and I didn't know the national anthem in Irish and they were all laughing at me and they bought it in a very nice way but they bought me out a printed phonetic copy of the national anthem for me to learn so I wonder like if I had been exactly how I am now, but a Gilgore, the data I collected would have been so entirely different. Um, so I do think that that is, you know, something that's missing and something that I need to situate more clearly within the kind of overall outputs of the research, because I have no doubt that like at least half of my participants would have been Irish speakers and I could have explored that world more if it had been something more prevalent in my world at the time. Yeah, you know, if I was doing this research now, it would be something that I would, you know, instinctively just want to ask as I'm learning, particularly because, you know, I finished my data collection before COVID, basically. But if I was kind of doing it now, I'd be like, oh, I want to go with you and speak Irish with you because mm. this is something that's important to me now. But I certainly know that the singing of the national anthem, the greetings, the um, a very kind of Martin McGuinness-esque style of uh, entertaining at the start of functions where they would do the first couple of words in Irish always and then they do the translation in English. I don't know if that's just a dairy dad thing as well. I feel like every dairy dad says the first two lines in Irish. It's like, and every, then it's like every Irish wedding you go to now. I mean, I, I constantly, yeah. I spend most of my time writing out two sentences of Irish in phonetics for mates of mine who have to get up and speak at their daughter's wedding and they want to say something in Irish and they don't yeah. have any. So I, I love it. It's great, but as you say it's, it's a it's a symbolic use of iris rather than its communicative use you know as, as a living yeah, and that's something language. that you and i should definitely you know take forward um i did i did a podcast two years ago now for the mother folklore podcast and had so much interest from irish speakers but not once did the question come up in the kind of debates and in the conversations that i had with hundreds of people when i was curating my twitter did you meet any irish speakers so it seems such an obvious thing to ask but it was so removed from where my head was when I was doing the data collection because I was very interested in the political kind of identity of the, the subject of Irishness rather than the, the language. So I'm, I'm definitely that. fascinated, it's yeah. It's interesting. It's, it's, it's really honest of you to admit that, but it's really interesting too because it also shows, and I've, I've noticed this myself as an outsider. I'm, out, I'm an outsider wherever I go, I suppose, being kind of London Irish and living in, living in Ireland, but you, the dislocation that exists between Irish people here and the language is sometimes really fun. It's so fundamental that dislocation 
but as you've just admitted, it doesn't even occur to people to think about that. And I've noticed that in other people here, and I've gone, oh, fuck me, that is a real success of colonisation when when people are totally and utterly removed, not just from using the language, speak, but even thinking about it. Yeah, and I think, um, I definitely feel like living, so my, my school, for example, every single class did Irish language lessons in my school, except for my class because we did Latin in primary school so already from the age 11 I was kind of othered from you know my peers who kind of all did very basic Irish who all went to the Gale talked and stuff um and also I'm the only non-Irish speaker in my family everybody else in my family did uh, Irish lessons my godmother was a prolific Irish speaker and I think your godmother was my teacher in Queen's yes, University that's right. 30 years ago on you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes and I think moving to England as well just further removed me like I can't tell you in the last 10 years every year me and my friend Jack hi Jack how are you doing uh sign up for Irish lessons and every year I find an excuse oh no I can't go that <laughs> night or something come up you're not the only one but I think now and having met you and having you know really kind of finished the PhD and you know, it's such a big thing to get out of the way that I've now opened up space both politically socially and personally now to the Irish language and I'm very very grateful for your patience and writing well, everything out for me I always I always like finishing our podcast talking about the Irish language because I'm a bit when it comes to and Chang I'm a bit I'm a bit Taliban when it comes to the, the <laughs> I, don't, I don't take I don't, no fucking prisoners but I did start doing a bit of research over the weekend because I knew when I was a wee lad that there were pubs in London where Irish was spoken every Friday there was a Connemara pub and there was a Chirconnell or a Donegal pub and people did congregate to speak a, a bit of Irish. I'm not sure what the name, names of those boozers are, but I'll find out. Maybe we'll come back and have a, another conversation about the, we'll the, have to meet there. the Irish language in Britain. We'll have to meet there. We'll have to do a, an ethnography. I think, yeah, that makes perfect sense. We'll have to do a massive pub crawl all around London. <laughs> all right? And I also know there was a pub in, in Glasgow up until quite recently, which was an Irish-speaking pub. But anyway, that's the subject for another day. May, thanks very much for speaking to us today. I really appreciate it. Really enjoyed reading your PhD. Fascinating subject. And we'll maybe re return again and, and continue our conversation about about the Irish in Britain. But for the moment, thanks very much, Gormaga. Thank you, Gormaga. Fun. That, comrades, was Trademark Belfast. Thanks so much for listening in. We'll see you soon, either in the trenches or on the victory parade. Up the workers and slang of foil. <laughs>